if he can fight, if he can do this, I can stand here with him. Welcome to Story Sanctuary, a space for NICU parents to process and share their stories as a form of healing. Storytelling is how we make meaning and find purpose in our own experience. Each episode will feature a different family's birth story. Today, we're joined by Shamir. Shamir, to start, what's your child's name and what are they doing right now? My son's name is Julian. And he is in the den with his dad, running around on his little in his little play area. We kind of have him now that he's finally walking and running. It's quite interesting keeping him out of different things and out of <laughs> out of trouble. So we have our baby gate that keeps him from being able to go into the kitchen and have the door closed. So he's just in there, just running from one end of the room to the other and playing with his toys and just doing his thing. He sounds like a toddler. How old is he? Now? Right, he's two. He's two. Okay. All right. Well, where does your story begin? So my story begins with my first pregnancy, I'll say. Um, We were pregnant. We were expecting in 2016, and that ended in a miscarriage. During that time, when I found out I was pregnant, I actually was getting ready to start school. I was going to get my master's in social work, and I was actually quitting my job, doing a completely career do over so it was a very anxious time because I was like oh my gosh like I literally got a pregnancy positive pregnancy test and like I got my acceptance letter like (laughs) within days of each other so it was very overwhelming but very exciting because I've been trying for a while to to get pregnant and when I say a while I say a few months but anytime when you start trying you know you get married and then you're you're trying and you're older because I'm 37 but at that time I was maybe 33 So I was just, I just felt the overwhelming sense of time, you know, kind of sinking down on me because in my mind before this, I'd already like in my young, my younger self, I always envisioned I would have already been done having children by now, not just starting my, my journey into motherhood. So at that time I I was a little bit more anxious than I probably needed to be, but nonetheless, so that didn't, that didn't um, go well. And so then I start school that August, and so I had this overwhelming sense of I've got to, you know, try to figure out when I can get pregnant. You know, I want to try and do this while I'm in school so that I knew I would start, be starting my career after, and I didn't want to, you know, didn't want to have to figure out work and taking off and all that good stuff, whatever. And so that was challenging. So then we, but it finally happened, and... In my first trimester, I started having some spotting. So that was very, very scary because having a previous miscarriage, you just automatically, you're, you you're, you just start thinking all the worst, you know. And so they put me on um, progesterone um, supplements. So I was doing those up until maybe like my 12th week, I think. Because it started maybe around the 9th week. And so I did that for a few weeks. And the spotting stopped and everything went went well so from around week 13 or so to week 20 I guess I say 25 and a half everything was good I just had a normal pregnancy you know experience um at that point wasn't having any more spotting I wasn't too too sick I was working I was going to school 
So everything was pretty easy breezy. You know, I just really, really excited and everything. And then I graduated that May. And I think we had our, I graduated maybe like May 8th. And then it was like the week before um, Mother's Day. So we did our, our like reveal that Mother's Day. And then in July, we had like our gender reveal party. Just really exciting, fun stuff. June, I, let me back up a little bit. June, I got a job in my field, so I was really excited about that. I'm um, really passionate about working with ger- geriatrics and gerontology and things, so I was working in that field. And so June, July, gender reveal. August, I start having, start spotting again. And this spotting was different, and so I called, it was a little bit chunkier. Like, I hope, you know, is that... No. Okay. Whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah. And so anyhow, and so it was a Friday and so I was terrified, you know, having gone through my experience, everything is so, you're just like, oh my gosh, you know? And so I, I called the, I was getting ready to go to work. I called the doctor on the way to work and they were like, oh, well, you know, we can have the nurse call you back later. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm so just terrified i'm like how am i gonna go to work like this waiting for a call from the nurse like i can't i just spun my car around and just like drove straight to the doctor's office and just like popped up you know and they just kind of looked at me like what are you doing here you know and i was like i'm sorry like i'm i'm spotty i need to see somebody and my doctor wasn't there apparently no doctors were there so they told me to go to they were going to send me to the doctor that was kind of like on call down the hall so i go there he's not there I wasn't having any pain, really. I just kind of felt like, almost like maybe I was getting like a bladder infection. I felt kind of like just like pre- a little bit of discomfort in the bottom of my tummy. How far along were you at this point? A few days from 26 weeks. So maybe this was like on a Friday. I had him on that a Tuesday. So not any like major, major discomfort. Just I was like, you know what? I think I'm getting a bladder infection. And my sister, when she had my little nephew, that happened to her. She got a really bad bladder infection and started having started her to have contractions. So I'm like, hey, I need to get this nipped in the bud so I don't have something crazy happen. So they did a um, urine sample, and I asked them. I had to beg them to do the Doppler on me. I was like, can you please can I listen to the heartbeat? Can you can you do the Doppler? I'm just really really scared. And they're just like, I remember the nurse being like, I guess, but there's not really any reason to do that. And I was like, listen. You know, there's any, a mom always wants to hear a baby's heartbeat, especially when something scary is going on. It was just the craziest thing. So finally she brought out the Doppler and she's like, does that make you feel, I just remember her saying, does that make you feel better? And I just remember just wanting to slap her like, and I'm like, clearly, I'm just like, okay, clearly she's not a mom. She's never been through this before because she wouldn't have said that to another woman because any moment to hear your baby's heartbeat is makes you feel better like anyway no, nobody took my blood pressure or anything and these are just afterthoughts that I had I didn't even think about my blood pressure then or whatever and so then I left the house they said they would get back with me like with the results or whatever like next week so they were not very concerned thinking that it was like anything really going on and so that was Friday as I was driving home I stopped by and checked my own. I'm like, hey, they didn't even check my blood pressure. So then I'm like, oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if, you know, so I stopped and pulled over to Publix, checked my blood pressure. It was fine. So I'm like, okay. Were so you I, thinking it was maybe preeclampsia? That's what or? I was, that's what I was thinking, you know. And so since my blood pressure was fine, I was like, well, maybe, okay, you know, it's not that. So anyway, I went to work and I started feeling a little bit more uncomfortable as the day progressed. And then... Saturday rolls around, 
Friday, I never heard back from anybody, okay? They, they said I was going to hear back from the next week. I'm assuming Monday. Saturday rolls around. Well, that morning, I'm still spotting. So, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. So, I called the doctor on call at the hospital, you know, because um, the, the, the doctor is kind of like in the medical towers associated with our hospital in our town. So, I called them, and, you know, he calls me back, and he's like, spotting is normal. Women spot all the time, da-da-da-da-da. And le- as long as you're not, like, blood red, like red blood, or you're not soaking through a pad, you know, it should be fine. So, I was like, okay, you know. And he's like, you're not having any cramps. You're not having any contractions coming. They said pains coming at intervals. I wasn't having any of that. So we went to Chuck E. Cheese, went to a birthday party. But I just, I just kind of just didn't feel my best. You know what I mean? Sunday rolls around. We get up for breakfast. Same thing. You know, you're always checking. And I'm still spotting. And so, and when I say spotting, I don't mean like little spots. It was bigger spots, but it wasn't like what they say, soaking through a pad or anything like that or whatever. And so I called again. I'm like, hey, I'm having this discharge. I don't know what's going on. You know, like, I'm really scared. It's been happening since Friday. And he's like, you know, is, is, is it red? That's just old blood. Like, if it's brown, and it was brown. That was the other thing that was that was key to my particular situation. The spotting that I was having was brown. So every time I called, they I was told that brown blood was old blood. I was probably just from you know, being irritated at some point, um, just so many different things could make you spot brown. They were very unconcerned. And so Monday rolls around and I go to work and Monday is when I kind of started having more pressure in my, in my tummy. And, um, I remember trying to get through training and just kind of being uncomfortable as I was, cause you know, you're sitting, you're in the office, you're sitting in a chair and it's kind of like, eh, eh, you know, I never, I call the doctor and this time when I called my doctor's office, they're like, oh, we're sorry. The doctor on call is going to have to call you back with your results. And I'm like, what? And so it was kind of hard for me to really dedicate constantly calling and checking with them because I just started a new job. I'm training. And literally my boss, she was like sitting right there next to me, you know, like watching me and like waiting for me to, you know, so it was really, really stressful. So by the time we got through with all that and I called, I was waiting, I look at the clock and it's the end of the workday and I still haven't heard back from anybody. So I'm like, oh my goodness. So I go home and I'm like, well, maybe I just need to lay down, you know, and I'll put my feet up and I'm very spiritual. And I just, I was, I remember telling my husband, I was like, you know what, tomorrow on my lunch break, I'm running back to the hospital and I'm going to make them like, you know, see what's going on with me or whatever. I really think, I really think I'm getting a bladder infection. I just need to get some antibiotics so I can start feeling better before this thing gets crazy. And um, I said, I think I'm going to lay down for a while. And then just, I feel like just the, the Holy Spirit just said, no, you're not. You're not going to, you're not going tomorrow. Go now. And I'm like, what? Because I don't have any days to take off. So I'm like, hmm, maybe I should just go now. So my husband comes out of the bathroom. I remember him coming out of the bathroom. He's like, honey, I'm so sorry you're feeling so bad. Is there anything I can do to help you? And I said, yeah. I said, let's go to the hospital. Let's go right now. I said, we're just going to, um, and same, same thing. Don't take a shower. Just go now. I would have never ordinarily, like, gone to <laughs> in the emergency room and not like washed up or something but I heard that clear as day don't take a shower don't take a bath just go right now my husband's car had started acting up he's a big tall guy and at the time I had a little Ford Focus and um I was like well 
hun, we can just, I'll just drive. Like, we can take my car. That way you can lean the seat all the way back and you can, you know, have more space. So this is how normal I felt. Even though I kind of felt kind of like, eh, in my tummy, I didn't feel like I was about to have a baby. I never felt like I was in an emergency situation. Never. If I had thought that I was in, like, about to have my baby, I would have went to the emergency room a long time ago. I would have been more... You know, I would have fought more, but I trusted them when they kept saying that, that it was normal. And that just hurts me a lot sometimes when I think about that, you know, because I, I can't help but think, you know, what if, you know, I had done something different and not just, you know, been so trusting, but it's hard, you know, when you're pregnant because everybody tries to convince women that every little thing that you have is so normal and don't worry about this oh she doesn't know she's a new mom and there's always that kind of vibe from everybody your your friends everybody you know because even my mom she's like well you know honey i spotted all throughout my pregnancies da, 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 da. so i did kind of feel like well i'm just being anxious because i have had a miscarriage and i'm just kind of you know whatever so nonetheless we're driving in the car i'm feeling fine and my husband's riding and i'm like yeah i'm like honey we need to hurry up and get to the emergency room so i can get these and i i almost convinced myself not to go because i was like oh my goodness i just did lab work here they're gonna charge me twice and then same thing i said don't worry about that just go we'll argue with them about that later so i kept i proceeded and um as i was driving a pain just hit me from my back and just rolled all the way around to my stomach and I was like whoa you know I didn't say anything I didn't say anything my husband I just kept driving and then a few minutes later because we were about maybe 15 minutes um from the hospital it happened again and this time I looked at the clock and I was like and when it happened that third I was like oh so this is what they mean when you're having contractions and they're coming at times intervals I'd always heard that before but you don't know what it means until you actually hit with a contraction and that's that's when I realized what was happening and at that point it was just kind of like they just kept coming and kept coming so I'm breathing and driving I didn't even I don't even think I really just told my husband at that point because I knew that I just knew I couldn't stop it wasn't one of those things where I could stop and pull over and we could switch drivers and it's like I had to keep going and so I kept going pull up and I could barely get out of the car that my husband just hopped at this point he realized he's like oh my gosh you know because we, we didn't talk the whole time it was just me I just I haven't even been to like any of my classes but I just knew it's just like okay just you all I could do is breathe through those pains I just I just was like and so we get there he hops out he's like you know I, I, um, we need some help you know we walk in and they give me a chart and they're like okay fill this out and just have a seat and I just remember I looked at that thing and and just out of me I said no I cannot sit down i am in discomfort i am pregnant and it hurts to sit down right now and that's when they're like oh wait you're pregnant ma'am oh gosh and then all of a sudden people started running out they got a wheelchair they sat me down they're like we're sorry we can't ask women anymore if they're pregnant for like hipaa reasons and stuff privacy reasons so they wheel me in and wheel me to the registration desk of all places so i'm just like oh my gosh and you know the ladies ask me all the check-in questions and i'm just like you know just like breathing and just like 
whoo. And finally, I'm like, I need somebody to take me. I need to go. I need to go. I need to go. And the um, they're like, well, we're waiting on the escort, ma'am. And he finally, he finally comes. And it's just like, I just couldn't. I just, it was just such a surreal moment because I knew at that point, this is serious. And they're playing around, you know, getting to labor and delivery. And they're like, well, those, you're not having contractions. We don't know what's going on. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not having contractions? And what is happening to me? Like, what am I feeling? And so they just kind of set me up to the monitors and like kind of walked out of the room. And I'm watching my husband and I'm watching the monitor and you can see, you know, the little every time I would have a pain that monitor that thing was going up and I was like I didn't want to say anything because I was trying to not freak myself out and my husband wasn't saying anything but I was watching him and I could see the look on his face and we knew and so all of a sudden the nurse runs back in and she pulls the monitor down a little bit lower and she's like okay you are having contraction let me check you so that was kind of scary because I'm at the point in my pregnancy I had never been checked before so I don't even know like okay you know she does that and she's like okay Mrs. Hatcher um you're two centimeters dilated and I can feel his head and I know that's not supposed to be so I'm like well wait a minute like where's my mucus plug so that's what I had been losing all weekend long when I was telling them I was spotting brown after I've done research after the fact you know you don't it doesn't have to be what you think your plug and when you're when you're dilating and all that kind of stuff it's not always a bright red bloody show or you don't always have like liquid water coming out or anything like that or whatever um because at that point my water hadn't broken it was just I was losing you know the protective factors that were you know were there so they just even at this point I still felt confident that okay well I know people that have had gone into preterm labor and they just give them something and they have to go on bed rest so I'm kind of like rationalizing my mind I'm like okay oh gosh I'm gonna have to go on bed rest for a while probably it never dawned on me that I was about to have my baby I thought I just knew that there was something that they could do and they were from what they told me, they were. They're like, hey, we're just going to, you can stay two centimeters for a while. We're just going to give you some steroids just in case. And we're going to give you some magnesium to stop the contractions. And then we'll monitor you for 24 hours and, you know, take it from there. So I'm like, okay, they're going to watch me until tomorrow and then I'll go home. Maybe I'll have to, to, to rest. So I'm kind of thinking about that sort of thing, how I'm going to figure out work or taking off or whatever. The pain, they couldn't ever, like, the they were giving me magnesium, it wasn't stopping, they had a hard time getting me a vein, so it just kind of became kind of, you know, kind of awful, and they asked me, finally they gave me the magazine, they finally got me an IV, and I remember the nurse asking if I wanted to take a sleeping pill, and I was like, well, yeah, she's like, because that'll kind of help you relax without being like a narcotic, because they didn't really want to give me, I guess it was kind of like they really couldn't give me anything for the pain, you know, so to speak. So, um, I didn't want to take anything either. So, I'm like, is that safe? And they're like, yeah. So, I take the sleeping pill. And I just remember, I got up and went to the restroom. And they were like, if you ever feel like you got to push or anything, like, don't do that. And I was like, okay, you know, okay. And I, I get back in the bed. And, like, as I lay my head back on the pillow, my water breaks.
I'm feeling very calm. And so I just push the button and I'm like, hey, you know, I think my water just broke. And the lady rushes in and she checks me. And as she checks me, she climbs into the bed with me and just like sits in my lap with her hand inside of me. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, Mrs. Hatcher, his umbilical cord is prolapsing. It's coming out. We have to go to emergency surgery. And as she was saying that, she was pushing the button and like, it just seemed like the walls just came crashing in. Like, all these people just started rushing in. Other people were reaching in. They're hooking up me to a catheter. They're doing this. They're doing that. And I just remember looking over at my husband, and they're like, we're going to emergency C-section. And in my mind at that time, because a lot of times when I think back on it, I felt like this, I was so calm because the sleeping pill had worked. But I don't even think it had been long enough for the sleeping pill to have taken effect. Maybe I was in shock because I remember just being so just like, Okay, you know, okay, this is happening. And so when they said we're going to emergency surgery, I said, Well, come on, honey, let's go. And they said, No, Mrs. They said, No, Mrs. Hatcher, he can't go. Because I'm envisioning, okay, you go to C section, which you see in the movies, you know, or on Facebook or whatever. You see, you know, you go in, you have your, they have you covered from here down, and the dad's there, and you watch your child being born. I had to have been in shock because it's not even dawning on me. My baby is not, is 26 weeks. Like, what? Because I've never known a child to be born that early. So they're like, no, he can't go. And they just rushed me out. And that's the last thing I remember. I remember waking up and the nurse saying, can I touch your stomach? And and she just started that process. And I remember just just screaming, you know, from the pain from that. Um, and so then the next thing I remember is being wheeled to see my baby and that's kind of cl- cloudy because I look at pictures and I and, and sadly I can't remember exactly like the pictures that we have when for me holding him isn't the first sometimes I would get confused actually and think that was the first day that I saw him or held him it was the first day that I held him but it wasn't the first day I saw him I saw him maybe a few hours after he was born but I was in a wheelchair. I was so out of it. I don't really even remember, really. I, it's just like a, it's like a, almost like a dream, you know? So I keep track of it by the pictures and the date stamps on the pictures. And that's kind of how I kind of know, okay, though, this is, because the first picture that I have holding him is like the day after he was born. So I'm like, wait a minute, that's not possible. That can't be the first time I saw him. I know I saw him the day he was born. So then he was doing really, really well. The first week, I just kind of had this sense of calm. You know, it's kind of like it's happened, and I was trying to just, okay, I'm a mom, my baby's here, just really trying to be positive, and just really try to just try as much as possible to, to have that birth experience. This was other, another, thing, I think, a form of shock and denial, too, because as that day, they had to do it, so back up. The reason why I don't remember anything from my C-section, too, why my husband couldn't come was because they had to put me all the way under and intubate me. And they cut me from my my belly button all the way down to like an inch into my groin. So I have what you call a classical incision, which also means that for my next pregnancy, I can't have like vaginal birth after C-section. I'll have to have another, another C-section. I can have a bikini cut the next time, but it could cause a uterine rupture. My, my likelihood of uter- uterine rupture is, is higher with that particular cut and I have to also I had to wait 18 months before I could conceive again which I we're past that point now whatever but um but that was just key things that you know I thought were important to to mention 
Why did they need to put you all the way under? I guess because it was such an emergent situation. Perhaps maybe the block takes longer to to work. I I, I really don't. I don't know. I, I didn't even think to ask why. What was why they would have to put me under? Maybe it was. I'm assuming it was quicker. I really don't know. Maybe it was the way. Maybe they they were concerned about. They probably were concerned about how he would come out. Maybe they would have to do more surgery. I really, I never even thought about why. I just assumed that because it was such a emergent situation that you automatically put them all the way under. But I don't even know. And they probably just didn't really know what they were getting getting into because the lady had to ride to. I do remember riding down the hall, and she had to like she rode with me. Then like she couldn't take her hand from out of me because she had to hold his keep his head from because he was about to basically just just slide on out and if he had come out that way with his umbilical first it would have strangled him and even with that he did really well because they always test like the umbilical cord to see oxygen loss or whatever and so he did really well with that didn't lose a lot of oxygen so um so that part of it the procedure and everything like everything the timing of it was perfect my i know my OBGYN after the fact because i actually had to switch OBGYNs because it wasn't my OBGYN that had delivered. It was just the doctor that was on call that moment. The trauma, like having to even just go into the office for like my checkups, it was just so traumatic for me. I just couldn't take it. So I switched doctors to a hospital in another uh, few minutes away because I just, it was just so overwhelming. Just going there just, just reminded me. It, it reminded me of my son because it was in the same hospital where he was born. But it also reminded me, it made me just, the whole thing made me feel so distrusting and just not safe. And feeling like we're here, we're watching all these mothers and everybody thinks everything's okay. And I just felt like a cow being herded. Like we're just getting herded in here to get checked and, and pay our money. And like you don't real have any real protections. Like you don't really have real access to anyone if you get in distress. You really need some help. You know, the doctor's always like, oh, and they're so, try to be so nice and everything, but you don't really have access to them, you know, after the fact. I remember when I had my first pregnancy, when I um, had my miscarriage, I found out I was having a miscarriage. I knew I was going to have a miscarriage because they, um, I demanded to have my hormones checked, and my doctor was like on a ski trip. And so another nurse, uh, the nurse just called me and was like, hey, we're sorry to tell you your hormones aren't going where they're supposed to go. I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, well, either it's going to catch up or you're going to miscarry. So sorry. And so we went through, you know, I think about a week or two of me just waiting and hoping that I wouldn't miscarry. And then I did, you know. So I just it just fostered like a huge distrust in the office and just so much trauma and everything. Well, that's actually important that you bring that up because if you go into a place and you don't feel safe, I would really hope that people feel empowered to make a different decision. If that's to change doctors, to usually to change doctors or change Abs- what your situation Absolutely. Is. And I feel like it's a sign. I'm like, if I feel this strongly about it, because you kind of go back and forth. I'm like, I've been coming to this OBGYN since I was like in my 20s. So I, I, I love her. It was nothing against her. But I just had a feeling. I'm like, I just feel like I don't need to be here anymore. So... I get discharged, and I think that was that was the hardest part about that. That's when reality really hit me when it was like, okay, you're going home today. And it was like, you know, that's when I realized I'm going home, but I'm not going home with my baby. I'm having to trust, leave my baby here in a place 
And I was already kind of a little bit distrusting of the hospital anyway, so I had to leave my baby somewhere in this hospital, trusting these doctors, and it's like, oh my God. And it just, I just remember, I kept putting it off all day. The doctor said, you don't have to leave until midnight. So I literally stayed until midnight. And I remember my husband, when he went to get the cart to like load up with all of our stuff, I remember just getting so mad at him. I was like, what? Why are you rushing? Like, what is the problem? And he's like, babe, we have to leave. And as a, a midnight approach, and I still hadn't made it home, I remember my sister called. And she was like, hey, I'm just calling to check on you because you didn't call me. Let me know you made it home. Like, you okay? And I just started screaming. I was just, just, just everything was just coming out of me and I and I remember just thinking kind of like having an out-of-body experience like Shamir they're gonna think that you're crazy they're gonna like probably like try to lock you up or like think you have like postpartum or something like I'm telling myself you gotta stop and my sister's like girl and my sister's she's my little sister but she's like like a real tough kind of chick and she's like listen you're gonna have to get it together you have to calm down you cannot be in the hospital screaming you're gonna have to come home it's gonna be okay so she got me together my husband wheels me out, we go home, and that, you know, that that's always, that first night home is just like, because your, your body hasn't accepted that you're not pregnant anymore, so just, and you've, I've already been, I've been gutted like a fish, you know, it's just how you feel, and I'm trying to get comfortable, I just, I remember I just had to just sit up and sleep, pretty much like how I'm sitting right now with pillows behind my back, and as I tried to go to sleep, that's when the phantom flutters, I could start feeling like it just felt like, because I would usually feel him at night, and I just, that was just so hard. It was just like, this is just not, I can't believe something so horrible could happen. And, um, and then I would try to take my shower the next day. I would feel the flutters. Just awful. So those first two weeks, I just remember feeling so weak. And you feel weak, you know, I guess after, I, I don't have another experience to compare it to. But I guess maybe all moms feel kind of weak after they have the baby, especially after a cesarean. But I just felt I, I barely could eat. You know, I'm trying to pump and everything. And I didn't have an appetite. And that wasn't like me because I'm usually a stress eater. But this, I just felt like if you touched me, I'd just fall over and just, just die. So I, our routine was we get up in the morning. My husband was able to work from home. And he, I couldn't drive yet. So he dropped me off at the hospital, he'd work, and then he'd come when he got off work and stay the rest of, until the shift changed, and then we'd go home. And so those were always hard when I would leave, because I never wanted to leave him, because you couldn't really stay at, like, the, in the, he was in his own room for a while there. He never made it into a different room there at this hospital. So we had our own private area, but it was so tight. I remember thinking, like, if I tried to, like, let the, the chair out to, like, relax my feet, because my feet were swelling... So I'm trying to put my feet up, keep my feet up so the sweating can go down. But I would almost kick his his incubator if I let the chair out. And I'm trying to be sanitary. I got my bag with all my pump stuff and my cleaning supplies. It was just like, you know, a whole mess. So that was 26, 27, 28 weeks. So we have that routine of me going up there every day, me going home in the night. What was his status when he was born? So when he was born, he was a rock star. Like they, that was like the thing they said every day. He's like, he is such a rock star. He was, I think he was intubated the first day, and then they took him off, like maybe like the next day. That he just had like the nasal cannula. I, we were syringe feeding him. I mean, he was smiling. I mean, it was just, and he looked, you know, because they always say, uh, you know, sometimes preemies have like a preemie look. He looked like a like my exactly like my husband like a little miniature husband he was just so not that any baby is not handsome but he was 
we always got so many compliments about how beautiful he was. Like people, they nurse where they just come and stare at him. Like he is just so perfect looking. And so, and he was exactly two pounds. No, I think he was, he was two pounds and one ounce. I'm sorry. Which he was measuring about two or three weeks ahead. Cause they even thought that was big for a 26 weeker. You know, most of the 26 weekers that I've met were maybe like a pound or so. But my husband, he's a big guy. He's like six, four, big kind of guy. So they were like, well, that's not, you know, he probably was going to be a big baby. My husband was like a month premature and he was like eight pounds. So I had been anticipating having like a big baby. So anyway, he was doing great. And then one day I went, we'd started noticing his tummy was getting bigger and, you know, we're not having anything to compare it to. We were like, is his stomach supposed to look like that? It looks like his stomach is getting bigger. I mean, because it was stretching. You could see his little veins and stuff. And I was like, is that normal? And I remember the nurse being like, well, yeah, you, you, we just fed him. So that's probably why it's doing that. And then I, we asked again. I remember her mentioning kind of just kind of like side of her mouth like, well, no, I don't think it's neck or anything like that or whatever. You know, I didn't know what neck was or that it was even a thing to, to like, the nightmarish thing that it is. So we kept watching it. And then one day I came, maybe on maybe the third or fourth day, I I always did kangaroo time and he loved it. Whenever we, I would put him down in my shirt, his stats would be, his oxygen would be like 100. He would be perfect. He wasn't Brady. It was just, he loved it. This time he didn't. He cried, and he never cried. Even when they would prick him, do stuff to him, he was like a champ. He would never cry. I put him in my shirt, and he just, he couldn't get comfortable. I could just see him. He was squirming. He just cried. And I said, what is wrong with my baby? Something is wrong with my baby. Something is wrong with him. Like, what is going on? Why is he crying? And they're like, oh, he probably has gas or this, that, or other. He couldn't get comfortable because his stomach was hurting. And I'm laying him on my stomach and my chest. So I remember taking him and turning him to his side. Because I could tell him, like, he, it seemed like his stomach hurts. I turned him to his side. And he finally got comfortable. And I just eventually had to take him out and put him back in his bed. And I just remember having that bad feeling, like, when it was time to go home, like, oh, man. You know, like, like feeling like I shouldn't leave. And that's always hard because you have to leave because at that point you can't, you can't really stay and those hospitals, you know. And so I went home and I, was, I pumped. And I, it was about 9 o'clock that night. And I was washing my pump parts. And I, I'll never forget. And I remember getting that phone call. And they were like, you know, Mrs. Hatcher, um, you know, we just need to let you know, you know, something's going on with Julian. And uh, we just want to prepare you for when you come to see him tomorrow. He's not going to look like, you know... We had to do some different settings with him. And it was just, I don't even remember the rest. Because it was just like, it was just, just the worst feeling. Because I knew that day something was wrong. You know, and so to hear that, it's just like having a nightmare. And then waking up and it's like the nightmare is coming true. You know. How long had it been since he was born? About two weeks. About two weeks. Because what happens then, they still hadn't said anything about neck. They just start giving me all these handouts about infections and washing your hands and parents making sure you're doing this and doing that. And I just remember being so offended because I'm like, so they think he has an infection. And they're also implying that it's something that, that we gave him. And I've been a germaphobe all my life. And I'm not perfect. But I'm like, no, I'm not buying this crap. Like, I know he didn't get it from me because I I was a, I wore gloves when I touched him. I wore gloves when I cleaned my pump parts. 
I wasn't playing around, even though I didn't even know how dangerous. I had no idea how much danger he was in from germs just in general. But I just knew, you know, from me being so cautious about germs anyway, I was taking extra precautions. I was on the nurses and I saw them like, hey, are you supposed to wear a mask? Are you supposed to have your gloves on? Like, what's going on? You know? So I'm like, no, mm -mm. He, he ain't get some, just some kind of virus or something, some kind of germ from me. So... They start testing him, drawing cultures. So we have to wait like 48 hours for the culture to come back. And it kept, nothing was coming back. So I'm like, yeah, I figured he didn't have some kind of germ or something. So what's going on? And so finally I went up there one day and the doctor, you know, told me, he was like, you know, I'm glad to see you. And I, I think we need to get him to children's hospital an hour away we needed we need to get him to, to get there because he has necrotizing intercolitis and this thing takes babies out and i need you to, to to understand that and if it can perforate and if it does he has to be he has a window where he's stable he has to be there in that hospital ready for them to do surgery so what is neck any baby, uh, newborn baby, can actually develop this. It doesn't have to be a preemie, but preemies are more likely to develop it because a baby's gastrointestinal system is so immature and it's thin. And basically, there's like areas where bacteria can kind of like leak through and different things, and it can just it just gets inflamed. It gets inflamed, and that inflammation can cause the intestines to rupture, basically, and it causes it to die off. And, you know, worst case scenario, like babies die a lot of the times, or they have to have their intestines cut and resected, and they end up having, like, small gut um, syndrome or have ostomy bags. Just, I've seen various degrees of it since, because I'm in some different neck support groups and things. But at that point, I had no idea. I'm just like, what? Like, what do you, because they mentioned it before, kind of like an aside term, and even gave me a pamphlet on it. But they just, it just never, and I get it, because they don't want to just, like, overwhelm parents and just kind of beat them over the head with a, hey, you know there's this lingering disease that babies, preemies can get, and Cause I probably would have like, they would probably would have had would have had to medicate me if I had known if I had known that. So so I get it, but I just I was just so taken aback, and and he was, I think he knew I was because I remember him. He just looked at me. He said, "Are you okay? Like, am I overwhelming you? Are you understanding? Are you understanding what I'm saying?" And I'm like, "Yes, I understand what you're saying." And he said, "But," and he kept saying, "I think, I think," and so when he walked out. Um, he said he's going to go call a friend, a colleague at the children's hospital to see if, you know, he could get a, get a spot for him. And so I called my husband. I was like, I think you need to get here. I think you need to get here like right now. And so he rushed up there and when he walked in the door, he's like, Oh, I'm so glad you're here. So we're about to airlift him to children's. It's like, and so I almost feel like sometimes he knew that I was about to like lose it or something. And he was hoping somebody was going to come there with me. And so I'm like, when he's like any minute. And it was like, and it literally that was the worst part of that experience. It literally felt like if somebody just pulled the floor from under me and you just, when you're just like the feeling of what it must feel like to just fall, you know, to the abyss. That's how I felt. And it was just horrible. And so all of a sudden within a, you know, a short time, 
they come in with the stretcher that has like an umbilical cord, like an umbilical cord, goodness, that has like an incubator attached to it. And I'm just like freaking out. Like, oh, like my baby that's not supposed to be out right now. It's not supposed to be here. We're supposed to be quiet and like be still and keep him from moving around. And at this point, we knew that he had also, um, I know you asked about what was going on with him. He did have a grade one brain bleed. So I'm like, they're about to put him in this, in a helicopter with all this noise. And just like, I'm just like, just losing it. And the nurse at that time, this was a nurse we hadn't had before. And just thankfully, she was so sweet. And she was a woman of faith also. And she just grabbed me. She said, can I pray with you? We're not really supposed to do this. Whatever. Like, close the curtain. And she closed the curtain. And I just remember she just wrapped her arms around me and she just prayed over me because I didn't have any strength to pray this happened so everything was so crazy I didn't even have I didn't have any more I couldn't even I couldn't even pray I was just I was so weak I was so dumb like literally you could have touched me and I would have just fallen on the ground and just withered away is how I felt left and they're like you know you don't have to rush because you know you're not going to beat the helicopter so then I'm driving because I drove myself there at this point I had gotten discharged so I was driving back and um I just remember thinking oh my god the helicopter's gonna crash and it's just I'm just thinking this ever you just start because when something like this happens when everything starts going wrong that's supposed to just be normal you just think anything can happen I'm like am I even gonna make it and then I had to call myself I'm like girl you better calm down because you're going to run off the road. You're going to die. You're not even going to make it up there to get to your baby. You're going to run off the road. You can't even drive home. You can't do this. Like, these are just the things that I was hearing in my head that I had to, like, push myself through to even to even get, you know, make it home. And it was maybe, like, that might have been, like, my first or second time driving. And I'd had a situation because I was at the hospital. I never rested. I didn't, you know, I know moms, some moms, they can't deal with the stress and they kind of take a few days to kind of get home, recover before they start doing their, their rotation at the NICU. And I couldn't do that. I had to be there to the point I busted my stitches open. (laughs) And I don't, I don't advise that for anybody, but I just couldn't, I couldn't not be, it was like, I felt like an animal is what I, when I think back to those times, I felt like how a mama dog must feel. You know, when a mama dog has puppies, and if you've ever been around puppies, and you can't move those puppies around. If you move those puppies somewhere else, even though you're trying to get them situated in a safer place, she is crazy. She just has a crazed look in her face. She's looking for those babies. She's going nuts. And I and we raised some puppies once when we were um when we were coming up, and I I just remember like this must be what she felt like when we were trying to do, help her with her pups and she didn't know what was going on and she was ready to attack us. And I remember just... That is the perfect... <laughs> I felt from, like that. Just knowing from my personal experience, <laughs> yes, that's a great comparison. I remember feeling like that all the time. Like, I will just, like, rip somebody to shreds. Like, I am just like, what is going on? I just felt crazed, you know? And um, so, anyway, I... I my incision came open and that was a nightmare because that freaked me out and it happened like the day my husband had to go out of town to work for a meeting and uh, I just happened to get a mirror and look and like there was like a gaping hole so I had to call a friend to take me back to the hospital so she can like you know it was just just 
so many things. And I just remember my OBGYN just looking at me so pitifully. And she was just like, I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. And it was just like, I just remember being like, sorry doesn't help, you know, like, sorry doesn't help. So anyway, so we get the children's an hour away and it was nighttime by the time we got there. I don't, I didn't even grab my purse. We just, we just left. We didn't know where we were going to stay. We didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't know what was going on. We were just getting to that hospital. We didn't check in. We didn't sign in. We didn't register. We just went straight up there. And it was just such a different experience at Children's Hospital. The respiratory tech was there. He was the guy, the first person that we met. He was so sweet. And he um, brought me in, brought a pump to me. I'm, you know, because I had, by the time I got there, I'm like, oh, my God, I got a pump. I got a pump. And he's like, don't worry, I got you. And he went and got the pump and brought it in there and got me all set up. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of peace knowing that, oh, there's a couch right there. My baby's right there. I can sleep here tonight. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm going to sleep here tonight and it's going to be better. I don't know what's going on, but it just felt better. Even though he was like sicker than, you know, I didn't know what we were facing. It was such a, a healing experience just knowing that I could sleep in that room. If whatever was going to happen, I would be able to face it with him. And I just remember the, the next day, like the um, social worker and everybody was telling us about the Ronald McDonald house which was like a couple of blocks away. And I was just like, honey, you can go there, but I'm not leaving this room. I'm never, I'm not leaving this room until my son goes home. Because I had just come to just an understanding with myself that, you know, whatever he was going to face, I was going to be there. I was going to face it with him. I wasn't going to have another experience of like leaving and then somebody calling me and then something just my baby being one minute one way and then the next minute being completely different. I just I knew I just couldn't handle that. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to stay here. I'm just going to deal with that. And that's what I did. I slept there on that couch for 110 days because at that point he was about 29 weeks I stayed there, um, stayed there in that room. I pumped there. I washed my pump parts there. I wore my pajamas there. I had my bonnet on my head there. Like, they, I would be up, walking up and down the halls, two or three in the morning, because I'd have to go out sometimes to get hot water in the hallway, you know, to bring it back in. And then they gave me bags, and I'd go down to the lounge, and I'd go microwave my pump parts. I'd bring them back in, and I, I had my little... Like, I had the whole little setup where I'd dry my pump parts and do my thing again. You know, I had it. That was my little apartment, basically. That's pretty amazing <laughs> that you had that as an option because there are so many people. At Like, in our experience, there was a big recliner, and I slept in it once, but it would not Mm-mm. have been possible to do Yeah, I couldn't have done day. that at, like, the other, at the other hospital because that's all we had was, like, the recliner. In this room at Children's, you had the recliner and you had the little couch. You had, like, two closet spaces where you could put stuff, but it wasn't, like, obvious. It was, like, wood, like kind of like that wood grain look. So it looked like the wall, but actually it was closets and stuff. You could open and put stuff in there, and they had shelves. Under the couch, there was, like, space. Like, there was drawers where I could put things and stuff. I had his window decorated with, like, you know, um, the milestone cards and prayers and just... We just had it going on in there, whatever, and they didn't have curtains, so there wasn't any privacy, but what someone taught me to do was you just take a blanket, because they have those, like, those TV screens, kind of like a computer slash TV, and it moves around the air, it's hooked up to something, and so we would put, we made a tent, 
and we put that blanket over that. And so I would sit in the chair, and that was my pumping station, and I would hide behind that. So sometimes the doctors and the whole team would come in, I'd be pumping, and I'd kind of look around and say, hey, it's fine, I don't care, you know. <laughs> the only reason why I even, and I just did the tent for my husband's sake, because he was just like, oh, people can see you. I'm like, I don't care, I'm a, I gotta, I gotta get this milk out, I don't care if somebody had... My grandmother always said, if they hadn't seen it before, they don't know what they're looking at anyway. So that's kind of how I felt about it, you know. But I was trying to respect him and keep him from having having a freak out. So we were, our situation was really blessed because, you know, the Ronald house was two blocks away. So my, we got a room there, and my husband would sleep there at night. And his job let him work from the, the NEQ. So he would get up in the morning, come over, and um, in town for rounds and everything. I would get up before rounds, like maybe 6 in the morning, walk over to the rhino house, take a shower, give him a hug, and then, like, hightail it, like, those two or three blocks back over to the hospital so I'd be there in time for rounds and everything. And um, and that was just kind of, like, our routine. Like, the Ronald McDonald house really got us through because they would have, like, meals and different things or different families would feed families. So that would give us some kind of different. And the hospital fed me, too. Like, I got three trays a day, like, from the hospital that they would provide for me. So I really didn't have to leave my room other than, like, sometimes friends would visit and they would, like, take me out to lunch. Once he got to where he was better, but at first, I just, you really had to drag me out of the room. Like, I didn't want to leave, you know, his side. And so he went there for surgery, but he healed medically. He had about three or four bouts of it. So what they would have to do is stop him from eating, and he would have to be, like, TPN. And so he'd be TPN and get the rhino antibiotics. And we and he was on an oscillator also. Because what it does, necrotizing colitis, it just it just does. It's, the inflammation process just affects other parts of the body. You know, it affects their, for some reason, it affects their carbon monoxide and, like, how they're able to expel. And it's probably because their bellies, I mean, his belly was bigger than all of him. So their belly gets so big, it's hard for them to breathe over that. So that was the other thing that was so, when I went to see him that, that first day after he was so sick, that was just so, because he they had to sedate him and, and put him on this oscillator, and the oscillator kind of makes them shake. And it makes that noise, and it's just the, it's like a nightmarish noise, you know, just awful. So um, so then we weaned him from the oscillator, and we would go back and forth between the CPAP and, you know, trying to... Um, get him off of that so we went through that process we'd go up and down and then he started having um his veins were starting to collapse because they were giving you know so many ivs so many blood transfusions um he's having pick lines eventually at one point we had to do um he had to have surgery to have a central line put in because it was just becoming a nightmare just trying to get a vein for him to get his nutrition and everything so it was a mess it was probably from about august to about november before we started to see a turnaround where it's like okay okay we can start maybe we can you know see the light at the end of the tunnel but it was still kind of funny because it's like there's that roller coaster something would always happen that would like take you up and down you know and so once we got past the next stuff there was the possibility of a stricture so even though he healed medically he would keep getting sick when they would start to reintroduce food and they would have to stop him from eating again, all of that. And so the doctor was like, well, there's a possibility that when it heals, it can form like the 
the intestines kind of just heal kind of yucky like and they can make strictures and blockages so i'm like you mean to tell me they can heal medically and then you have to turn around and have surgery anyway because they're because of that i'm just like what are you kidding me and so they kept checking him for that the surgeon so now the surgeon team is making rounds every day so this is a new experience a terrifying experience at five o'clock in the morning steward i'll never forget him he would come by every morning and i wake up <gasps> steward what do you think and he's like he'd look at him he's like no i don't think so and he'd walk off and that would be like would you just imagine like death walking past your door like i i just remember feeling like that you know what i mean it's like okay not today okay 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 we met with like maybe two other surgeons and they all were just like i just don't think because what they wanted to do was exploratory surgeries what the doctor was suggesting where they would basically have to open him up take his intestines out and feel around to find this spot and i'm just like what you know i'm like no 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 no. and i remember telling i met a lady that worked at children's and she was um the registrar because remember we just went in there we never registered so they were just calling him baby hatcher for like the longest and this lady was like called me she's like hey you gotta get registered you gotta get him in the system like well, you need to come over here da, 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 da. so anyway i was getting ready to go over there to meet her and she ends up another registered lady comes to our room just walks into our room but she was looking for a different family but I just started telling her about him and everything that would happen with him and where we were from. We were from like a, a town an hour away. And her son was from that town and he goes to the same church as I do. And we just bonded and she's just like a powerful prayer warrior. And so she just became like our mom. Like she would come up and check on us. Like sometimes like she'd give me hugs. I'd go down there crying, you know. But anyway, I called her when they were talking about wanting to do this exploratory stuff. And she's like, no, no, they're not doing another thing to him. She said, you go in there, you touch him. And and you pray, you play, and you Isaiah 53 and 5. And she would just say that all the time, you know. So anyway, when it, it, the doctor finally got, we got to a point where we'd done different tests. We'd done the dye. We, they had to do like the enema dyes up him. They had to do the dye. We had to drink the dye going down. They're watching it in the x-ray. I was right there in there. Like they were trying to take him down the x-ray. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to, you know, give me a little thing to put on. I'm going with him. Cause I'm like, no, I don't. I didn't even trust anybody to like will him. I'm like, well, what if he stops breathing? What if the oxygen? Like, no, I'm going to. So we get down there, and the you know the X-ray tech's like, well, no, everything's going through fine. And then we had to do that process again about a week later because you have to wait for all that dye to clear out. Then you have to give them the enema, essentially with the dye, and wait for that to come out. And you have to go to to do that part. So anyway, after all that, the doctor kind of just, he just said, I'm going to put the ball in your, I'm just going to leave it, leave it up to you, mom. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, we're either going to try to see if we can do some more tests and possibly do exploratory surgery, or we're going to try to feed him again. What do you want to do? And I was like, what do you want me to do? Flip a coin? And they just kind of looked or whatever. And I was like, you know, I just prayed to myself and I said, no, we're going to feed him. We're gonna feed him. We're gonna feed him, and so we fed him, and he started doing much better. He didn't have another round of it or whatever. He he did good. He had an incident where he had like he got some fluid like in his lungs at one point, so we had to start him on a diuretic, and he came home on the diuretic for a little while, and that's around the time we started realizing that he's probably gonna have to come home on oxygen. 
And so we're approaching the holidays and his due date was November 13th. And so you always kind of hope that you can get home by your due date, you know. So once we got to Thanksgiving, we spent Thanksgiving there. We kind of started losing, not hope. We knew that he would come home, but it was just kind of like, we just need to kind of give up on this idea of there being a timeline. You know, like, it's Thanksgiving. We thought we'd be home by now. We're not. Let's just, make, we might as well just start thinking about Christmas being here. And I, I remember being bringing a little tree in there and, and, you know, putting up some decorations and stuff. And it's like, as soon as I did that, they're like, oh, so we need to start planning for discharge. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so um, we start going through that process and everything, whatever, which was great that I had a roomed in. I had been there. I learned. I knew how to use his oxygen equipment. I knew I'd been doing the care. Every night I was giving him his bath. We were feeding him. You know, we were doing that hands-on care with him. So... That part wasn't hard because I read different moms. I try to encourage other moms in different groups because a lot of them, when they have to do that room in weekend, they are totally overwhelmed because they haven't done any of that stuff before. And when you, when it's like, hey, you got to stay here for a whole however many days and it's just you, it's very scary. And it was still intimidating to me even because by us being an hour away, we didn't have the nursery finished and it happening all of a sudden, his turnaround being so quick. You know, because they were really concerned about with it being flu season and everything. They're like, listen, he's doing great. He's eating well. He's growing. We need to get him out of here before something else happens. So I, that weekend was the first weekend my husband, like, had to be away from us because he had to go home and, like, get the house ready for us to come. So that was a little bit overwhelming because it's like the nurses, they were like, you're returning the box office. It's on you, mom. So that part was kind of scary. But I, I still felt good about it because I... I I was used to being there. I knew his signs. I knew what, you know, I knew how to care for him. So I always encourage when I talk to moms, I know it's hard. And I know that everybody's mental capacity is hard for them to be there every day. And it's hard for them to do that stuff, whatever. Because it was hard for me. Feeding him was hard for me. Feeding him was scary to me. I remember being just terrified that to just feed him his bottle that, I would choke him. For some reason, I didn't mind so much like doing the syringe. Like when he was being tube fed, we kind of, I kind of felt, okay, I got this. But that bottle, like holding him and like giving him the bottle, something about that just terrified me. And sometimes with occupational therapy, they would come and they'd be watching and it was just kind of just so, it. you just feel watched a lot. That's the other thing about when you're a mom in EQ, you always feel like you're under the radar. You feel judged even though nobody's really judging you and some moms do get judged depending on the nurses that they have or their particular situation because of that it makes some people it takes a while for people to realize that they are the mom yes. and that they are in charge even after coming home yes because you're used to having to check in mm -hmm. ask permission mm -hmm. have people watching mm -hmm. you so even if you know you're doing something correctly you're like oh exactly do yeah. exactly and so that part was hard and so I, I my heart goes out to moms that you know I, I try to encourage them but I understand that everybody just depending on your nurse situation my nurse was honest with me about the fact that some nurses aren't comfortable with doing kangaroo care they're not comfortable with taking the baby out of the incubator, moving all the wires around, hooking it up and trusting mom or feeling like being bothered with it, just to be honest. some You get some lazy nurses. You get some lazy nurses. And she, because uh, I started noticing why, why, why isn't, I knew about kangaroo care before this happened because 
in my social work, I had done some maternal um, advocacy and stuff like that. So I'm like, I know kangaroo care. I need to be doing this as much as possible. Like, what's the problem? And she's like, listen, you're going to, it just going to depend on who's here. Thankfully, when we got the children's, everybody was more comfortable. It was never an issue never an issue with me you know as long as he wasn't on the oscillator once he was off the oscillator they would hook that th- i mean I'm, one time it was kind of scared one time he just kind of like i guess like stopped breathing his eyes rolled back in his head and they had to bag him like in my arms so i think that was like one of the most scary times i think maybe we had moved moved him around too much you know how stuff can kind of like the cords can kind of move or something or whatever so that was really terrifying, you know, because on the inside, I just wanted to scream like, oh you know, and it's like, Shamir, uh-uh, I'm just singing to him, uh-uh, I was just, I just, I just sing, I just sung praise and worship over him, and I just, I just had to just sit there and deal with it and be his mama and be there with him because I always told myself, if he can fight, if he can do this, I can stand here with him. As long as he can fight and he can, I'm going to stand right here by his side. You know, I'm not going to cry. You know, I, I, that was, I, I just made a promise to myself that I was not going to cry in his room. So no matter what happened, I never cry in that room with him. When I just got to where I just couldn't take it anymore, I would go down the hall, I go to the bathroom, I go to the Ronald house, I scream, I cry, I would, I'd be walking down the street crying and screaming. But I just, I felt like, I just felt like if I lose it in here, I just felt like he could feel that and that he would lose his strength, you know? So we came home the week before Christmas and we got all set with his oxygen and everything. I was comfortable with oxygen because I had taken care of my grandmother and she had emphysema years ago. So I was familiar with oxygen and knew how to navigate life with oxygen. So that part was a blessing for me. That helped with my anxiety because it's very scary because you're like, you got oxygen tanks, like anything can happen. Like you're driving, I mean, just even just driving. I'm like, oh my God, like what if, you know, an explosion happens? You just start thinking all kinds of... No, that still happens to me now when I have... I mean, we keep oxygen in the trunk of the car. When I see someone smoking a cigarette, I'm like, they're going to throw it out the window. It's gonna, mm-hmm. The car's going to explode. Mm-hmm. So, yes, <laughs> totally understand. It's very, very scary. So, we went um, went through that until about... He was discharged at 10 months. So, thankfully, he's done really, really great respiratory-wise. And so we do early intervention and everything for, he, he has, um, like some developmental delays. And so that's been our, those have been our biggest challenges with him is at first it was like the physical delays. He had a hard time sitting up on his own. And because of that core strength, every time PT would come to the, to children to work with him, he would have something else going on. He'd have another bout of sickness. And so they couldn't do a lot of the things to bring his arms close to him and how a baby is supposed to be. They're not supposed to be out with their arms spread and just kind of hanging out here like preemies do when they're in the the incubator. So we had to do a lot of physical therapy and that was hard. You know, when you start going to those, the newborn follow-up clinics and they're just like looking at your baby, let me assess her, assess, assess him, what's this? He's not doing this. Okay, right, checklist. Okay, mom, you need to do this, this. You just, I just remember, I just cried that first, that first time taking him back for the newborn newborn follow-up clinic where they were assessing him. I just cried after. I felt like such a failure. I just felt like, oh my gosh, 
I don't know what I'm doing. That was like the first time I started kind of feeling like, I don't know what's going on, you know, because you feed them, you take care of them, but there's so much more, you know, you got to make sure that they're reaching their developmental milestones and all that is so overwhelming. And I still have my moments with that. Um, he's two, but he didn't start walking. He didn't really sit up until maybe on his own. So maybe like November, October, November is around the time that he started this past October, November. So it's been amazing his like how quickly he's been progressing. So around October, November is when he started being able to kind of sit up on his own. Then at Easter, he couldn't stand up on his own. And now he's running around the house. <laughs> so it's just like, wow, you know? So I, I, I say that to myself a lot to remind myself because now we're working on speech and we're having delays with speech. And so sometimes I just feel so over and, and feeding, getting him to chew different textures is, is a struggle for us. And sometimes I just feel so overwhelmed and I feel like, you know, we're two years old where he's not doing this, he's not doing that. It's just like, it's just scary. And then I have to remind myself, I was like, hey, remember how long it took him to even be able to sit up and give him grace and give myself grace for that. Just because it took so long, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But it's just hard because especially at this age now, people are asking you so many questions, you know, family and friends. Oh, why isn't he doing this? Is he doing that? Can he say this? Say grandma. Say grandma. And it's just like, he doesn't say mom. He doesn't say mom. <laughs> when people do things like that, do you have like a standard response you give? Or? I try to. I just remind them. I'm like, well, you know, he has some delays and we have to give him grace for the fact that he was very, very sick. Not only was he premature, but he was in the hospital for months. So we have to give him grace for that time that he was there, you know, and he's, we're doing the best we can. We're, we're ha we have the speech therapy. We're doing everything that we can, but he does have those delays and, you know, we're doing everything we can that, to help him. But it's hard because there's a level of acceptance too, I know. And so I try to give grace to them too, because the grandparents, you know, they don't want to accept that even the possibility of him not being like all the other children, the grandchildren that have come through you know, and so that's always hard for me because, you know, I, I have to accept him where he is and just take it day by day. And I can't worry about, well, is he going to be able to do this or is he going to be able to do that? Because I don't know. I don't know when he's going to be able to do those things. I trust in God and I know that he will make a way out of no way, you know? Yeah. But like you said, you have to give him grace. You give them grace, but you also give yourself grace. Absolutely. Before we go, I wanted to ask you, why do you share your story? I share my story because it, every time I tell it, I, I feel strengthened by it. I feel empowered by it. I don't feel so much of a, I feel a little bit less of a victim. <laughs> <laughs> because for for that, that first year, I, I just really felt like a victim a lot of the time. I didn't, I wasn't outwardly displaying that, I don't feel like. But I just felt like this thing happened to me, and I was butchered, and my baby was ripped out of me. Then my baby got sick. This thing, terrible thing happened to me. And that did happen. But um, I think I was trying to be such a super mom so much, I didn't deal with those feelings for a while. And then one night, maybe a few months ago, I just I just had a good cry about it. Because I felt like it wasn't okay to cry about that. I felt like I just needed to just, hey, you just got to do for him. You just got to help him. You got to just, don't worry about you. Because I felt like if I started crying, I would never stop. 
and I feel like that a lot sometimes. But it's but the the crying, the tears, the talking, it's the it's it's healing. It, it it's healing in that, and it's okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing it, and thank you for doing this with me. Thank today. you for having me, and I. Another reason why I tell my story is to help others. I feel like I, I just think if I tell this story, maybe some other mom can pick up a sign from this and and be an advocate for herself, you know? Absolutely. And so many points in your story, you literally took the words out of my mouth. And so for me, even right now, just hearing someone else put words to an experience that we both have in common is just... It feels really good for me too, so I appreciate that. You're welcome. I'm glad. I'm glad that you can that you can have someone to relate to because it's a lonely experience. It's lonely. It's it's lonely out here, and so I'm always it's always a good feeling where I can meet other moms. You don't want to meet uh, know that there are other parents that are having to go through these tr- troubles, but it, it's still comforting nonetheless to have a community. initial interview, Shamir sat down and thought about what she wanted to be the lasting memory of her birth experience and of her NICU journey. She recorded this beautiful piece as an add-on. My story is one of faith, of hope, and of love. My lasting memory from our birth experience and our NICU journey will be the love that we all shared the love that radiated from my husband, the hope that we had to get off the Niki roller coaster and take our baby home, and our incredible faith in God that was tested and strengthened by our experience. Although that was the scariest and most challenging time of our lives, we were still able to experience so much joy being new parents and loving on our baby. We were blessed to be in a hospital that allowed us to be very hands-on with our child, and that made a huge difference because we were able to feel more like our son's parents and not like visitors. I want to forever remember the bath nights and the songs, the walks hand-in-hand, the feeling of Julian's little fingers on my chest. If I live to be a hundred, I hope I never forget those things.